0: If you have a Bible, feel free to read along with me. It should be up on the screen as well. This is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, that each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is God's word. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you again. We love this church. We love coming to worship with you guys. And uh, we love praying for you, and we appreciate the fact that you pray for us. Uh, Sherry and I were just in India in January for a couple weeks doing marriage conferences. Remarkable. It's remarkable to see the grace of God transform people's lives in a two- or three-day period. And I'll be back in India at the end of April where we'll be doing Bible college. This morning I want to talk to you about joy, and I want to start by asking you this question what makes you happy now I've never met anybody that doesn't want to be happy so I assume you want to be and so then the question is is have you ever thought about what makes you happy or what would make you happy so right off the cuff if somebody were to answer that that ask that question to me I, I think my instant response would be to have enough money to never worry about paying the bills that would make me happy. I raised five kids on a pastor's salary. That's often what we thought about, what would make us happy, just to be able to go out to dinner without counting pennies for the tip, right? And so, uh, so for some people, they want to uh, make sure they have enough money so much so that they play the lottery. Uh, maybe that's some of you. I'm pretty sure that nobody pays, plays the lottery unless they're convinced that winning the lottery will make them happier. And uh, for some of you, it might be uh, to be thinner. That would definitely make me happier if I was a little bit thinner. Um, Maybe that's most of us. We're pretty crazed as a culture about being in fitness in the right shape. I look at Ben Weber up here, and I always look with, well, I was never that thin. I think the Lord loves short and stocky people um, more than the lanky and the thin and the fit. Um, He has a special joy for the struggle that we face in life. Uh, Some of you might say it it would uh, make you happy if you had good friends. I'm certain some of you, uh, especially those of you who are college students, would love to be married, find the right person to get married. Maybe, Maybe it's to have a feeling of purpose. People in our culture a lot talk about having purpose or a job a job that you love. For some of you, it's to be well-liked. You're a people person. You want to be liked. And, and uh, for some of you, it's to be well-known or successful. For people my age, we we hope that our children are successful and prosperous and happy as well. Uh, around holiday time, Easter's coming up. We'll see if you have a united family on that Easter Sunday. That, for some, that would that would make you happy just to get along with your children. You know, the list is long and, and it's easy to put things on this list but as I look at the list of what would make us happy, every one of those things about is about the opposite of what we've been singing about this morning. It's about happiness flowing from having an easier life. All of those things are about having a simple and easier life. But you see that kind of Happiness is fleeting. It's, it's, not, it's not bad to be about, happy about these things. I'd be happy if the Falcons won the Super Bowl. But, but it would only last, that only lasts until the next game, right? Because the next season comes and it's a whole new thing. See, happiness comes and goes because it's all circumstantial. What lasts is joy. Because joy doesn't come from our circumstances. Joy comes from the Lord. Here's a definition of joy joy is the supernatural response of faith to the faithfulness of God who loves his children in Christ no matter what. Let me say it again. Joy is the supernatural response of faith. To the faithfulness of God who loves his children in Christ no matter what. So, I want to show you three things this morning from this passage about joy, three aspects of the gospel that bring joy together. And the first is joyful unity. You know, Paul tells us right here in verse two that he tells the Philippians and tells us that it would make his joy complete if they were unified. Now, I don't know if you caught it or not, but this means that Paul already has joy, but he's also telling them and telling us that his joy could be greater, that it could increase. And and we know Paul already has joy because if you know the book of Philippians, he's already told us that in chapter one. In, In chapter one, Paul talks about four obstacles that he's faced that are obstacles to joy. There was his circumstance, he was in chains. But he has joy because his chains are furthering the gospel. Paul Paul faced rivals and troublemakers. But he has joy because Christ and his redemption is still preached. Paul faced uncertainty about his future. But he had joy because both life and death were great gain in Christ Jesus. Fourthly, Paul talked about the obstacle of fear in the face of persecution. But but he has joy because that same persecution is both a sign of destruction for the wicked and a sign of hope for the believer. See, quite simply, Paul has joy because of faith In the promises of Christ. And the promise is this, that no matter where you are in the circumstances or season of your life, if you are a child of God, then he is making your life count for the kingdom right now and for eternity for the sake of the gospel. He will never leave you or forsake you. His promise to us is not good things after a season of bad things. It's better than that. His promise is that even in hard times, our lives are counting for the growth of the kingdom of God and the glory and the fame of the name of Jesus. And in and, and doing that and bringing about that about, he is taking us through circumstances that mature our love for him and for others. So if you're struggling in your circumstances, it's because the Lord's goal is to mature you in your love for Christ and your love for others. He's growing your faith. He's causing us, Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 1, he's causing us to be a source of comfort to those who struggle. So when you're struggling, you know that God is at work in you to increase your love for others and your maturity in that love so that you can be a comfort to those who struggle. Now, that's pretty good, amen? So in the context of this encouragement from Paul to the Philippians, he says, go ahead, make my day. Take this joy that I'm sharing with you in the gospel and make it complete. He says, perfect my joy. How do we do that? Well, by being unified as a church. You see, adversity either brings you together, or it drives you apart. And the Philippians are experiencing a lot of adversity, and that's why Paul is sharing his joy with them because he is experiencing the same struggles. Now, now he wants the Philippians to share their joy with him back by their being unified. And he mentions four aspects of unity, four pillars staying together. First, he says, be like-minded. Now, this is an attitude of agreement. It doesn't mean you'll always agree, but even when you disagree, your attitude is still unified. Now, you've noticed, haven't you, that we've been through a pretty tough and nasty presidential season, haven't we? And it hasn't ended. It's still continuing. I've almost quit looking at Facebook other than to to wish people a happy birthday because it's distressing to read what people are saying to each other. People who would normally agree are condemning each other. Friends, enemies, it's, it's amazing to me how many people and how much people on the left and the right, how much we believe that policy opinions make you a moral or an immoral person that what you think the government should be doing decides your morality. And really, it's a reflection of our self-righteousness, that we can be righteous by thinking the right things and by having the right opinions about policy. It's so silly, and it's foolish and self-righteous to believe that you're on the side of angels. Isn't that the assumption? If you think you're right and the other person's immoral for their belief? And I've been guilty of it in the pro-life movement for 25 years, thinking that anybody who's not pro-life must be an unrighteous sinner. Well, anybody that is pro-life is an unrighteous sinner, or else we wouldn't need Jesus, right? See, nobody wants the poor to be oppressed or to be left without adequate health care. The debate is about what's best for the poor, So you see, brothers and sisters can be like-minded about the goal without agreeing on the policy. And we can love each other when we disagree. And in the church, you see this all the time, churches and friendships are torn apart by the decisions that are made in a local church about worship music, about programs, about how to use buildings, about whether to build more buildings, about whether there's enough parking, all kinds of things that people are working through, rip churches apart because we think that's the key to righteousness is getting those right. Here's what Philippians 4.8 says. Paul says this. Finally, brothers... Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, then think about these things. You see, being like-minded is a matter of considering what a great foundation that we have together in Christ And living in the attitude of unity and agreement on these things that Christ has done for us. Honoring one another's opinions and even our differences. Then secondly, Paul says, not only be like-minded, but have the same love. What he means is that in the church, we, we don't show preference for one person over another because of their class or because of their gender or because of their position. We're all equal in our righteousness in Christ. We're all heirs of the kingdom of God. And the means of our unity is having a common shared love for one another in Christ. Now, Sherry and I do a lot of marriage conferences in India, but marriage is a terrible example of this kind of love. My love for Sherry is not the same love that I have for you. I I hope you can see that and rejoice with me that that's not the case. But among my brothers and sisters, I am to love you each the same, and you're to love each the same. So Paul says in Romans 12, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Share with God's people who are, well, I was going to do the next verse, Share with God's people. Well, that didn't work either. <laughs> Just take that off. Here's what I want you to hear. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. You see, some people are more lovable than others. We always think we're the lovable one, right? Maybe you're not. You know, some people are easier to be around. They make you comfortable. Choosing their company over others is not love. It's your preference. Love is a mutual commitment to do good to each other, especially those in need. And Jesus tells us, when you're going to have dinner, don't invite the people who can invite you back. Practice hospitality. Invite the people who can't invite you back. Now, that's love. Thirdly, Paul says, be in one spirit, be one in spirit or or of one accord. I think the ESV says we're united together in Christ and Paul is telling us to live like it. Objective truth is unity. So we want to live as the truth says we are unified in Christ. Now, in this case, marriage is a great example. In marriage, God takes two people and makes them one for life. And the implications of that are obvious. Right away, you realize that the most important good in your marriage is what's good for both of you together, not what's good for one partner at the expense of the other, not what's good for me. We don't possess the other person. We give ourselves away. And so together in the church, we form the body of Christ. You see, we're each different. We have different gifts. We have different callings. We have different maturity levels, but together we are one body. So here's Romans 12, verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We belong to one another. Now, it's providential that you're having a membership vows this morning because this was already in my sermon. I didn't even know you were doing that. You know, it's become passe in the church to have membership. There's a growing movement in the Church of America not to have membership. And, you know, it's because it looks like it's old school or... You know, one reason is it limits my freedom. On Sunday, I need to be able to move about from church to church so I can hear the breast preacher or I can disappear when the pastor's not there. It, it, it doesn't seem to appeal to millennials to belong. It's, uh, it's, it's too it, it shortens my freedom, makes it smaller. But you see, church membership is an oath. We just witnessed that oath. First of all, it's a vow to receive grace from first one place, and that's from the Lord Jesus. And then secondly, it's a vow to the Lord to love him only with a full heart and to forsake all gods but him. And then it's a vow to love my neighbor as myself. That's huge. You see, membership in the local church is a vow to treat each other like family. And that means to hold each other accountable. Because Paul says we belong to one another. And you can't move in and out of a church and have that kind of accountability where you're loving one another. Because uh, we're like uh, like porcupines at a dance. We bump into each other and it hurts. And so we need that commitment because some days I don't want to be committed to everybody else. I've had my feelings hurt or something's happened in the church and I don't like it. And I need that vow. I need that reminder of that vow to love one another. And so I'm making, when I join the church, I'm making a vow that I'm going to promote you ahead of me. That's what membership vows really are. It's a commitment to promote other people in the body of Christ ahead of me. And to be held accountable. It's serious business, but it's also very good. And it's a pathway of joy. Fourthly, Paul says we are one in purpose. Again, we go back to the family. One of the biggest failures in parenting that I've witnessed over the years is that mom and dad are often not united in the purpose of their parenting, especially in the area of discipline. And that's because mom and dad are different. Um, One wants to punish more than the other one wants to, and so there's this conflict in the marriage about how much you're going to punish, what you're going to punish for, what you're going to reward, what you're going to reward for, and you got to work that out. And what I noticed as my children grew up is that they quickly figured out which parent was more prone to which, and they would manipulate that. So I'm the yes parent, and Sherry is the no parent. So if they want something, who are they going to ask? They would skip mom and come to dad. Dad, can I do this? Sure. I always felt like unless I had a good reason to say no, I should say yes. And Sherry always felt like unless she had a good reason to say yes, she should say no. (laughs) Probably your families are just the same. It could be the same gender, it could be opposite gender, but children will take advantage of that. So we made the commitment to one another that we would always back each other up, and we usually discipline for division. So if they came to me, one of the first questions I'd always ask is, Have you asked your mom? And if she had said no, then I'd say, What are you coming to ask me for? The answer is no. If mom says no, you better not ask me. And now, but Paul's not talking about the family here. He's talking about the church as a family. And then the church, beloved, our, our purpose is to bring glory to Christ and unity to the, to the body. And how we treat each other is grounded in that reality. Christ is dishonored by division and honored By mutual love. So knowing Christ deeply only happens in the context of the local church. That's God's design. And it happens in the context of serving one another in that local church and learning to defer. So if our goal is to know Christ, well, then we're kind of stuck with each other, right? Well, the second thing I wanted to show you in this passage this morning is joyful humility. Not only joyful unity, but joyful humility. If unity is what would bring Paul joy, then he tells us that that humility is the pathway to unity. Here's verse 3 and 4 again. He says, "...do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves." Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, we could jump right back here into politics, but I'll save us the trouble. For, For the unbeliever, here's how we think. For the unbeliever, there is a clear and definite order of love. Me first, others second, and God last. And for unbelievers, there's a merit to that order. They think it's justified. They may not be aware that that's how they think, but many do. Me first, others second, if there's enough left over, and God, he's out there somewhere. I remember a lady I worked with over 25 years ago as an, as, when I was an electrical engineer, and we were talking about the gospel and, and children and sin, and I was really sharing the gospel with her. She was not a believer in Christ. And I generally use toddlers as a proof of original sin because you don't have to teach a two-year-old to be bad. They're bad on their own. They're proof positive that we're born with a sinful nature. And so that's my normal argument. And yet this lady was not having any of it. She was excusing the behavior of her toddlers and her own as as well. And then she went on to make the point to me that God would never judge or punish sinners because he's too big for it to matter. He's just going to look away because nobody can touch him. But the implications of that are huge. That means his holiness is irrelevant. It also means that justice is non-existent. Anytime anybody says that, I always ask, even Hitler, even Stalin, no judgment. And then most of the time they begin to move the line and now you got them, see, because the line really includes me and you. So no, if there's no justice in this world, then, then life is without meaning. I hope you see that. If if rights are not ultimately, if wrongs are not ultimately righted, then what's the point? So I hope you can also see that there was a definite order to her love. Self, others, God. It's the root of the sin of Lucifer, who is the fallen accuser that we also call Satan or the devil, In Ezekiel 28, Ezekiel's a weird book, but right in the middle of Ezekiel 28, the prophet uses the prince of Tyre as a type of the devil. it's It's the literary centerpiece of the book, and the purpose of putting it right in the book is Ezekiel is making the point that what has brought the downfall of Jerusalem is pride. Now, here's the verse, it's up there. He says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, barrel, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. And on the day that you were created, they were prepared. Here's verse 17, because we don't have time to read it all. Do you have verse 17? No, here's verse 17. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. So I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. You see, Lucifer was to lead the whole creation in worship. He was the anointed cherub, the prophet says. It was his job to take care of God's trade, to pass God's commands to the troops, and to bring the worship of his creation to the throne room. And he was the highest of God's creation, and yet for Lucifer it wasn't enough. He wanted more. He wanted the throne itself. He, he, his wisdom and his beauty were matchless in the creation, but it wasn't enough. He wanted the worship of the whole creation for himself. It wasn't enough to lead the creation in worship. He wanted that worship. So in his pride, he sought to remove God from the throne and put himself in God's place. So here's what the prophet Isaiah has to say about that in chapter 14. He says, "'How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, "'son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, "'you who laid the the nations low. "'You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven.'" Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And so this pride, it brought instant judgment and the anointed cherub became the chief enemy of God and beloved, his sins have come to us. When Adam and Eve decided to follow the serpent instead of God, they inherited his pride and that inheritance has become our inheritance. And the root of all sin is pride. You see, pride looks at my beauty and it compares it to your ugliness. Pride looks at my intelligence and compares it to your stupidity. Pride looks at my ability And compares it to your incompetence. Pride looks at my accomplishments. And compares it to your failures. Pride looks at my righteousness. And compares it to your unrighteousness. Pride looks at my worthiness. And compares it to your unworthiness. Pride looks at my wisdom. And compares it to your foolishness. To my opinions. And your idiocy. Pride looks at my children's success and compares it to your children's failures. Pride looks at my blessings and compares it to your hardships. And you want to know what, beloved? Pride even looks at the level of my hardships and considers that they're worse than yours. Pride and the desire to be God is so central to the kingdom of darkness that in the wilderness, Satan tempted Jesus with the thing that Satan most dearly wanted world dominance. And he assumed that Jesus was just like him and would take the offer. But you see, beloved, the roadmap of exaltation in the kingdom of God is humility. So Jesus took a pass because the way of the cross stood before him, not the way of world dominance. So here's what the apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 5 and verse 5 and 6. He says, God opposes the proud. There it is at the bottom. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. In the kingdom, exaltation comes through humility. Now, do you know what the key to advertising is and marketing? People go to college to learn this and I'll just tell you in this one sentence you can skip the degree. <laughs> the key to marketing is self-interest. That's what's manipulated by advertisers and marketers. If you don't need my product now, I'll make you so interested in it because I'll show how it'll improve your life and make you happier. And, and do you know want to know why government giveaway programs always cost more than they put in the budget? Is because they attract more people than the, the policymakers ever thought because of self-interest. You see, the the flesh puts self first, others second, God last. And in the church, when we're religious, well, we'll change that order just a little. Me first, God second, others last. You see? So the good news of the gospel is that God has redeemed us from this kind of narcissism and slavery to self. So that we can put God first, others second, us last. But here's what's interesting. In Christ, our slavery to self-promotion and self-rule is slain like a dragon, but our self-interest never dies. We're still self-interested. We are created in the image of God to be self-interested. But in Christ, that self-interest realizes that I am at my best I am most fulfilled with the greatest happiness and the most pleasure when my truest pursuit is the pleasures of God and the good of others. In other words, God doesn't tell us to obey because it's right, He tells us to obey because it's good. It's in my best interest. Look at verse four from our passage this morning. He says, Philippians 2 and verse 4, he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see, the gospel does, the, doesn't tell me not to look at my own interests. He says, look at your, not, not only your own interests. No, the gospel assumes that I'm self-interest and what's being sanctified is my self-interest. My self-interest is never denied. What's elevated in the gospel is the interests of others. So here's how you live a gospel life. God, others, self. Self's not wiped away, but it's just reduced because the others are elevated to a higher place. So the third thing I want to show you this morning is joyful power. Not only joyful unity and joyful humility, but joyful power. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm still struggling with selfishness. Am I the only one? I really liked me first. Carol Hammerbeck lived down the street from me when I was growing up. My birthday is October twelfth, nineteen sixty. Hers is October thirteenth, nineteen sixty. On our block, the oldest went first. Always. And if I'd been a day younger, I'm sure it would have been the other way around. I especially like the religious world and the church where I can claim with my mouth and some of my deeds that God is first and yet actually keep me first, him second, and you last. I like that. And yet I hate it because it's so ugly, isn't it? Pride and arrogance and selfishness are so ugly. When you've seen the beauty of the kingdom, when you've seen the splendor of the cross, when you grasp the majesty of Christ's righteousness, then pride always looks hideous. And yet I know that no matter how hard I try, I do not possess the power in myself to become a selfless person. I'm just not that humble. It's not even possible. But there is a way, beloved, there is a way. And so we go back to verse 1 of our passage, Philippians 2 and verse 1. Paul says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then he says to seek the unity of the body in verse 2. It's because of Christ. It's because of the work of the Spirit, you see. The power for humility comes from the Spirit of God. And whenever Satan whispers in my ear that I should seek myself and ignore others, whenever my flesh cries out and says, Jim, seek yourself first. Don't listen to your wife or other people. Whenever the world tugs at my soul and the marketers grab me and says, be warm, be filled Seek your comfort first. Whenever that happens, well, then the gospel screams out back at me and says, Jim, there's something better. There's something better. You see, the Spirit will not let us forget. His job is to remind us. Whenever whenever he's at work, which is always in the life of the believer, he works by revealing our sin. He reveals our selfishness. He doesn't let us forget from where we came. And then he continually points us to Christ as the answer. You see, we have been united, Paul says. We've been united with Christ in his death and resurrection. When Christ died, I died. When Christ rose, I rose. And you see what that means? It means that sin no longer can call me a slave. And I no longer call sin my master. I'm dead to the old ways and no longer have to live in them. You see, I'm alive in Christ Jesus, and his pleasures are slowly over time becoming my pleasures. I no longer have to live according to my pride. And when I do, I can repent and turn back to Christ because my sin has been laid on him and his righteousness has been given to me. It's so good. Uh, But not only that, the Bible says I'm loved. It's incredible, really. You know, you know I, I'm a geeky engineer with a math degree and then a theology degree. I think that makes me a triple geek. But my anal- it means I analyze everything. My analytical tendencies, I can conceive a ju- of a judicial system that unites me to Christ, that imputes my sin to him, and then his righteousness back to me. But you know, love is another thing altogether. Because the father sits behind the the, the the on his royal throne, he sits. The, he's the judge, and he not only counts the son's righteousness in my place, but then he looks down over the bench and he says, "Now come home, and be my son. Come home and be my daughter." It, it's astounding. The world says, "Look at what your friends are becoming." Love them for their potential. Look, look, they're beautiful on the inside if you'll really look through the dross. But you see, the gospel will have none of that. The gospel's not interested in your authenticity. God loves us when we're ugly, that's what the gospel says. He sent his son to die for us while we were still sinners. That's the definition of love, the Bible says. He loves even his enemies, sending the rain in due season. His love is not about our potential, but about his character. And he gives us the gift of faith, not because of what we might have become, but because we're so ugly without it. And so our love in the body, you see, is the same way. We love each other in ugliness. That's the way it's set up. Not because it's easy to love, but because everybody we're trying to love is as ugly as us. Because that's the way God loves us. Not to change us or to get something from us, but because he's love and he shares himself with us in his glory. And then you see, Paul reminds us of our deep fellowship with the Spirit here. We've been given the Holy Spirit, who's a down payment, guaranteeing our inheritance in the kingdom, so that Jesus can say, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. You see, there's no one like our God, no God like the ancient of days, who makes us his children and shares his glory with us. We have been united in Christ, and we've been invited Into the fellowship of the eternal love of the Trinity, and his love overflows into the body so that we can love each other. It's an incredible adventure. It's a remarkable thing. And the Apostle John says that he wants to make our joy complete by reminding us of that, that we're invited into the fellowship of the Trinity. It's so good. But there is bad news, I'm afraid. The bad news is that in spite of the fact that you have been united with Christ, well, you can still choose to live according to the flesh. That option is always there. You don't have to, but you can. You can still continue to put self first. You can ignore the whisperings, warnings, and adventure of the Spirit. You can participate in the church, in the local church, as a member, as a religious person in such a way that your words are right and your heart is wrong. You can do that. You can use the Bible to justify your pride, your principles and your unbelief and your right opinions on Facebook. And you can sound righteous while you do it. I know this because I do it. Because parents do this all the time. You know, we, we say things like, you make me so mad. So we immediately blame shift the problem of our anger onto our children, right? And we look righteous while we're doing it but if you live like that, you won't grow, not in Christ. You won't experience real love for one another in the body, nor will you have lasting joy, and you'll just be another religious icon in the community, transforming nothing and no one. That's the result. And the greater danger is that you're really lost and you don't know it. But there is good news, beloved. It's incredible good news. Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins, especially the sin of pride, arrogance, and me first. And he rose from the dead to break that pride, to give us a new life and real power that seeks the interests of others and glories in the pleasures of God by imitating our servant King Jesus. And he gives us the reward of joy. So I invite you today to put your trust in him, to renew your trust in him, to repent of your self-interest and to look to your real self-interest To repent of your selfish interest by looking to your real self-interest, by renewing your faith in Christ, so that the order in your life will be God, others, and me. You know, over 30 years of church leadership, I've had so many folks that have been in my office or in my home, or I've visited in their home, who are struggling greatly with anger, with their marriage with their kids, with depression, with no joy, with assurance issues, emotional insecurity, with addictions, with deep sin habits. And each time I have visited, here's what I do. I listen for unbelief. I ask them what's going on, and I listen. And I listen for unbelief because there always is, you see. Not unbelief about whether Jesus is real or not, But unbelief about the power of God to extend and to actually make us new and to give us joy. You see, the angry man can't see past his frustration. The woman in the troubled marriage can't see beyond her fear. The addict, well, he can't see any other way to deal with life. No hope. You see, it's always something. And so I listen for that unbelief, and then I bring out the ointment. It's the anti-unbelief cream. And it's right here in verse 1, you see. We are united with Christ. That is the key. That is the thing. That is the joy. No one can change that in your life. Nothing can take away the love of God for you. Nothing. No one No one can make it better by offering you the temptation to stray from the path, and you can't make it more true through heroic obedience. We have already been given everything we need for life and godliness, the gospel says. So Jesus loves you with an unfathomable love. No one can take that from you. It's yours, child of God. It's yours. That's what Paul is telling these Philippians. It's ours. He is love. You are his friend, and our fellowship with God cannot be broken by your failure or by anyone else. So like the story of the father and the prodigal son, he's always there welcoming you back, and his mercies are new every morning. He's not angry with you. So there's no reason to be angry with anyone else. These are the true and noble things that Paul says we're to meditate on. We can love because we've been loved. We can forgive because we've been forgiven. We can show mercy because we've been shown mercy. So rejoice, beloved, and make my joy complete. Be completely humble and consider others better than yourselves, and we will have joy together that the world has rarely seen. And that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Let's stand for prayer. Our Father, we thank you that we have been united with Christ in our despair and desperation. While we're still ugly, Lord, you take us and make us your own. It's incredible, Lord, and we love you for it. We thank you that we get to receive grace from you and the joy that is ours in Christ Jesus. And we pray that you would drive the realities of the gospel deeply home to us as your children so that we would live as adopted sons instead of as orphans and that the chief place we would do that is in our marriage but then even more so united as families and as members of the body together. That you might work your joy deeply within us so that we might say, God, others, and me. Would you do that for your glory and namesake? And for our joy, we pray that you would in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.